Thank you for listening to this edition of the Perfectus interview. Perfectus magazine is dedicated to kickstarting a conversation around the key drivers of human flourishing, progress, and the barriers that prevent individuals from reaching their full potential. I'm Ben Wilterdink, and today I'm joined by Archbridge Institute President and CEO Gonzalo Schwartz to talk with Michael Gibson. Michael is co-founder and general partner of the 1517 Fund and author of Paper Belt on Fire, How Renegade Investors Sparked a Revolt Against the University. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, I think to get started, uh, I want to ask kind of a really broad uh, question so you can kind of help us do some sort of level setting here. How, how would you describe the American higher educational system as it is today? I think it's degenerated quite a bit. Uh, you know, maybe its heyday was the 1950s and 60s, maybe like the GI Bill era, where, um, you know, given the cost of education at that time, and it was within people's reach to get a degree while working some kind of job. I mean, you know, there are stories of our parents or, um, you know, maybe I guess, suppose some people's grandparents now, but, you know, back then you could actually work and pay off your tuition. You know, maybe you had the hustle, but, but it could be done. And then, uh, you know, starting in the early 70s and then moving towards the present, I I feel like, you know, the cost of college has gone up 4x in real terms. Um, and that, you know, it depends if you look at like state schools versus private, but still quite substantial increase there. And yet the quality of the education has not improved uh, that much. I mean, in the hard sciences, there are more facts and theories that have been uh, proven out that we could fill in people's heads. But when it comes to actual like learning and um, and teaching techniques, uh, I can't say that the college experience is four x better. Um, so you know, I don't I don't even want to get into. I, it's like I could spend a lot of time about the political bias of of higher education. I think that has distorted things quite a bit, and some courses are just pure indoctrination at this point. But I, it's like I could leave that aside and just talk about, wow, if you look at the cost and time and money that it takes to get these degrees and it's not even clear what's being learned, I think, you know, that's tragic as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I think is that is kind of looking at that problem and thinking through that what prompted you to write the book? Yeah, so I mean, my uh, career has taken strange turn twists and turns. I thought I was going to be a professor of philosophy. I was working towards a doctorate at Oxford. I studied ancient Greek and Latin. And Latin. Um, so I have a background in, in ancient philosophy, um, some moral and political theory. And it's just, <laughs> you know, that I never thought, you know, I'd drop out of uh, becoming an academic and then find my way into Silicon Valley. But I account this uh, sort of adventure in the book where, I, I come into Peter Thiel's orbit, and this happened in 2010. And, uh, you know, Peter and I, I had an interview with him, and we just got along philosophically. And he asked me if I would help him teach a class at Stanford Law School on philosophy and technology and um, and, and how they interact. Uh, and, I, and I said yes at the time. I was a freelance writer. Um, I didn't have a lot going on, and it just seemed like a really cool gig for about a year. And then I'd go back to LA where I was living, retire to my garret in the attic and start scribbling away again. Um, but I showed up to work the first day and I can tell you what day it is. Cause it was the first, you know, my first day of work, September 27th, 2010. And I walk in and like Peter, you know, he gave me a position at his hedge fund as an analyst. Uh, and I show up at this desk, trading desk, and it's just like you would imagine in the movies with anything finance related, stock ticker, CNBC, people that, mm -hmm. you know, they're big computer monitors, tracking numbers. And I sit down, I'm thinking, what am I doing here? And then uh, my colleague, uh, Jim O'Neill, came to my desk and he says, well, hey, we got to go to Peter's house last night on the plane ride back from New York. We uh, came up with this idea. We're calling it the Anti-Roads Scholarship but we can't really call it that, but it's, you know, we, we're, we just want to pay people money not to go to college and, and let them work on things. And I was like, Oh, well, I, I can't stand road scholars. So already this sounds great. Uh, so we went to Peter's house 
we it, it was a uh, there was a big technology conference that day, TechCrunch Disrupt that uh, you know a lot of people went to. Peter was scheduled to be interviewed there. And so the thought was he could, one of the things he could do in an interview was announce this program. So I go to Peter's house, Peter comes bounding down the stairs, we get in a car, next thing I know we're talking about, okay, what do we name this thing? How much money is it? How how much time? And we basically settled on, okay, it's going to be called 20 under 20, um, $100,000, 20 people a year. Now this program had two conditions. One, you had to be 19 and under to apply. And then number two, uh, you had to be not enrolled in school. So, I don't, you know, we we fleshed this out later, but I'm in the car. We get to this conference center and backstage. Then Peter is on stage being interviewed. And Sarah Lacey, the reporter, is asking him about this. And he announces the, the fellowship. And Peter's talking about it in the present tense as though it's this program that we, we've been running. So he's saying stuff like we're taking applications. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I went home. I, yeah, I was at a hotel because I just moved. And I remember calling my parents that night and I was just like, oh, my God, this is my first day of work. What's tomorrow going to be like? <laughs> so I, you know, I and, and that set me on my way. I ran that program for co-ran it for five years with other people and Peter and uh, just saw a lot of amazing things come out of it. So, you know, most notably is is Vitalik Buterin. The, the, we helped launch Ethereum with him in 2013. Um, you know, he, you know, just wiry Russian 19 year old we met, brilliant mind. And then, uh, you know, since then, Ethereum has become quite prominent and, and continues to be so. Uh, another one is Dylan Fields in 2012. Uh, you know, he was in the news recently because he, he founded a company called Figma and Adobe. Uh, bought Figma for twenty billion in in this last fall. So, you know, we 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 just saw amazing things come out of that program. Um, and and then by twenty fifteen, I thought, well, you know, we're giving out these grants for free, you know, no strings grants, but we could be making money here, in the sense that uh, we we could be making investments in in these companies and in these individuals, and then. Uh, build on that. And so me and my co-founder, Danielle Strackman, we we started our fund where we primarily back, you know, 90% of our investments are in people who don't have college degrees. So yeah, how did that, like, I wrote the book because I mean, on a number of levels, it's like, I, well, I, I mentioned I was on my way to becoming a professor. I saw some of the problems in higher ed, um, especially in the humanities where, uh, you know, it just, God, it was such a soul crushing existence. It felt for anyone who was trying to become a professor, the, the subject matter, the soul of it had been sucked dry, uh, just by Scott, you know, bad scholarship and, um, and, and like strange distractions and, and then all the way to, okay, what is actually college doing? And we're running this program and these individuals seem to be thriving more outside of it than inside of it. So, you know, that was one motivation for writing the book is I thought it'd be good to, you know, investigate and talk about some of these some of these things I had seen. Um, and then, uh, you know, maybe the, the, the second part is just really this business story, too. So I think it's extraordinary that, you know, and, and I like who am I to write a, a little bit of a memoir? But, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, I'm this like I say defrocked philosopher um, and, and with no background in finance. And then my co-founder, Danielle, she is the founder of a charter school, Innovations Academy in San Diego. She was a school principal there. And, um, you know, that's K through eight. Uh, so, you know, how does a school principal in this, you know, dropout academic, they start a VC fund and we've been doing quite well. We had a company go public in 2020, Luminar Technologies. And so I like to say we've returned more money to our investors than the Ocean's Eleven team steals from the Bellagio and MGM Grand. You know, so to me, that is an extraordinary business story. It's like, wow, these two people with no background in finance are only investing in dropouts and they're, you know, making millions for their investors. That that's a story worth telling. But the truth is, is, like when I was pitching it to publishers, they just didn't want to hear it. It got rejected over and over because, you know, my agent sent it out to 20 publishers and, you know, seven wrote back saying, 
well, we think Peter Thiel is evil and anyone, I mean, this is word for word. They said Peter Thiel is evil and anyone who works for him is evil. <laughs> so we can't possibly, wow. possibly publish this. I was like, okay, wow, this country is polarized. And then another seven wrote back saying, yeah, we can't do this. I went to Yale. I love my English major. I, you know, I studied literature and, and my life is amazing. So this is wrong. And then, yeah, maybe seven others were like, this isn't for us, but, but it's been wild. It's like, uh, people don't want to hear this. They they want to believe that the old system still works, um, even though it's starting to to crack at the and uh, the cracks are showing. Mm-hmm. And delving a little bit deeper into your, uh, on the book and your personal mm-hmm. life story, because you you go, it's, a, as we were saying a little bit off camera, a little yeah. bit all back, it's a very interesting journey that you've had and how you were, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I think you're selling yourself short in, in one way because, <laughs> when I see your think about your story, think about it, it reminded me of a book I, I read a, a few months ago by David Epstein about uh, range and how oh, generalists okay, yeah. triumph in the world. And I think, in a good sense of, of the word and of that description, mm-hmm. that um, you have specific interests that you've mentioned that you've tried right. to study or, or have worked on, but it seems you fit a mold of a generalist that is able to bring a lot of the various experiences to bear in your decision making. With the fellowship and with the 1517 mm-hmm. fund, both for you and Danielle from her background, right? Um, is, is that is that sort of fair? How do you how, how you would describe yourself or how you yeah brought, how you think about that as a? I love in, that in book the, range. It's a wonderful exploration of um, yeah this idea that uh, generalists and people who are at the intersections of these different disciplines and so on um, might have insights into things. I I. So, yeah, maybe this is like, um, what, pretentious to say, uh, like, I wanted the book also to be a meditation on creativity, because it's such a mystery. Mm-hmm. And when I was working for Peter, um, you know, one of the heuristics he would use when it came to uh, evaluating founders he worked with or people to hire was <clears throat> of all the inspirations in the world, he drew on the work of his uh, mentor and professor from Stanford, René Girard. Now, Girard is a French literary theorist who first started his career writing about Proust and Dostoevsky, and then became something of a of an anthropologist because of his interest in the madness of crowds, witch hunts, uh, and scapegoating. Um, and, and Girard has his theory about how these social dynamics play out. And one of the, you know, his book on on the scapegoat, Peter really looked to because Girard, in in his survey of the world's mythologies and in in these uh, historical examples of mob violence, when when the mob is trying to restore order by picking a scapegoat, it's not just anyone that they pick as the scapegoat. Girard noticed that the scapegoat is is in the words of David Byrne of the talking heads, strange, but not a stranger, meaning uh, there's this insider outsider polarity where, you know, the scapegoat can't be so foreign that this person couldn't possibly be responsible for the social crisis at hand. But on the other hand, neither can they be so much of an insider that they're like part of the King's court and trusted or whatever. Oftentimes the scapegoat is this boundary figure that somehow fits in as an insider and outsider paradoxically. And the fact that Peter would use this, oh, because Gerard points out is like, oftentimes the scapegoat is a hero, you know, is uh, these people have extreme characteristics. And so I thought it was interesting that Peter would use this heuristic and we came to use it ourselves when evaluating talent. I mean, I think for example, it's like, why are, it, it, it's good explanation why immigrants are makes for just such good entrepreneurs. Um, because, you know, of course they're hungry and ambitious, but I also think it's the case that they're both insiders and outsiders. It's like on the one hand, they're U.S. citizens, but on the other hand, uh, you know, maybe they still have ties to somewhere else and fresh eyes because, you know, the culture isn't entirely their own. Um, and that leads to insights that others might not have. So when I was writing the book, I wanted to, I had to create a little bit of a self-portrait and see myself in that framework. And so I tell a personal story as well about how how I'm an insider and outsider. It's like I'm an insider. I almost became a professor, but then I dropped out and now I'm this rebellious outsider. But on a more personal level too, is like in my own family, I grew up thinking, 
you know, one person was my dad. And then when I was 20, learned that someone else was. And, and to me, that sets up like, okay, yeah, even within my own family, I was certainly part of it. Uh, but then all of a sudden, I was not part of it. It was like I was different. Um, so I, 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 that insider-outsider dynamic, I think, is fascinating. And I wanted to try to portray that uh, in, in fullness, you know, without, without uh, bogging the, the tail down too much and like backstory. But, but yeah, so I reveal a bit about myself. And hmm. in, in speaking a little bit about that, I was wondering if you can tell us, because your Twitter handle has his name, uh, who was uh, William Blake and why is he influential? Yeah, so in your I, so... Your story. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I, uh, I, when I dropped out of Oxford, I, I, so yeah, I always wanted to be a writer when I was younger, when I was 18, 19. Um, you know, this is uh, a little too mimetic in, in, in the Girardian sense where <laughs> I, the writers I admired when I was 19 and like T.S. Eliot, the poet, on the back of the book where they have that picture in the bio, you know, paragraph bio, bio I remember reading that uh, Eliot, had a PhD in philosophy from Harvard um, or Tom Wolfe, another one, a writer I admire. He uh, had a PhD in American studies from Yale. So I, I remember thinking that, you know, if I'm going to have a writing career, maybe these guys were on to something. I came to, you know, and <clears throat> enjoy the subject matter for its own sake, but, but it's interesting how those things set you off. But I, but I had a breaking point and I was in the basement of, uh, of a bookstore in Oxford. And I was reading this old collection of journalism Tom Wolfe had put together. And I just thought, yeah, what am I doing? I, I got to just get out of here. If I'm going to write, I got to just write. Uh, so that was one of the, the turning moments for me. And and I thought the plan was, okay, I had some experience in journalism at small town newspapers, magazines I'd interned at and so on. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get a job in a, in a newsroom I'll work the fat off my prose. And then in three or four years time, I'll be ready for the main event, which would be some kind of nonfiction book or, or novel. Um, and so when I got lucky when I dropped out, I got lucky enough. Uh, I got a job at MIT. They have a magazine called tech review. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I be, I was, I became a journalist um, and, and I was just covering science and tech for the first time, just, you know, I'd, I'd get assigned just crazy stories I knew nothing about. But the beauty of it was I had the the uh, professors at MIT I could talk to and, and they could, uh, you know, point my way to something. So, geez, I've lost track. I've, I've gone down this path <laughs> of, of my history. But, yeah, I, I uh, so that was my background. And, um, you know, I just always wanted I was always a storyteller. And I, like I'm still inspired by Wolf and, and those people who thought that, you know, you could use all the techniques of short stories and novels and memoirs and so on to to really try to get to the truth of something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes sometimes even better than just articulated, you know, abstract kind of language too. I mean, sometimes it's yeah. a lot deeper. Well, uh, right, and and Peter Peter Thiel is a very well known figure, especially recently for a lot of his uh, political. Uh, maneuvering and and so on, but the to me, I think what's missing out in the world really is like what well, hey, he's. I mean, he's a tremendously creative individual and um, very innovative investor. Uh, so I also wanted to portray what it was like to work behind the scenes on that. Yeah, yeah. I think what's what kind of jumps out at me from you know as you're telling this story and like what really grabbed you was the story uh, element of things. Like journalism, obviously, is partly a storytelling uh, exercise as well. Yeah. Uh, and so that seems to be like very, very um, connected to like what you were looking for, what you're after. Um, mm. And that seems to have translated into, into some of your later work. And yeah. then also that kind of seems to be like one of the key things that's missing from a lot of academia. Uh, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of philosophy as well. Mm. I don't think I ever really thought I would try to pursue a PhD, but I right. remember reading some of it and, you know, going to some of those classes and you're just like, wow, this is amazing. Like these ideas hit you and it's like, bang. And then right. you start reading more and I'm just like, wow, this is so, this is so dry. Like this is just <laughs> so, this is just, it's like math with the English language. You know, you're just kind of, it's very formulaic, very detailed. Mm. Uh, and it's sort of, 
I don't know. I it's more it's more mechanized, maybe it's more it's yeah. more systematized, and it it seems less creative and less uh, focused on stories and inspirational uh, things. Yeah, um, I think that's right. Is like because maybe in the class when you first start, you're wrestling with the big questions as embodied in some work written by a master from the past or you know some interesting person, but then the like philosophy academic philosophy is just professionalized now and the whole incentive structure of the ivory tower i think sets the the course of you know how people pursue the subject so that the you know these professors are writing these these papers that that read like legal briefs for boring lawsuits and you know it's just a whole nother it's just a different activity from whatever those other great minds were doing in the past. It's like Nietzsche, you can't even imagine Nietzsche in a modern academic philosophy department or, or Plato for that matter. I mean, yeah. you got dialogues, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, that would be, that would be something to, to see sort of the reaction because <laughs> it seems so dissonant from, uh, from the reality of, of what's mm. happening uh, in college campuses. And I think, you know, Russ Roberts, uh, host of Econ Talk, he's now president of Shalem College. He was kind yeah. of in the Stanford loops there too. Um, he he wrote a book, Wild Problems, that sort of Oh, I very much enjoyed um, that one too. Yeah, yeah, I'm big fan of it. And I think he kind of is it seems to be he's hitting on something similar where mm. he's um kind of talking about how you know we're almost driving to reduce certain decisions or even life more generally to be more formulaic and, and rather right. than an adventure or a journey to be enjoyed or experienced as, as he might put it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I noticed that, that there aren't many, I don't, it's like, I don't know how to characterize this. Sometimes I'll, like the word scripts comes to mind is like mm. scripts aren't available for younger people to understand how they might scaffold a adventurous life doing new things. Mm. Um, instead there's like this assembly line to some vague pre-professional degree, and maybe you become a consultant or investment banker or lawyer. Um, and, and, and because those paths are, are like obvious and visible and so on, but we don't have like the role models, uh, on a much smaller level to show us the way, because it's like the, because uh, to come back to the hard problems thing is it's like, okay, you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. This is a nasty, gnarly, hard problem. Like you can't draw a list of pros and cons or, you know, some kind of cost benefit analysis, about you know, path A over path B. And so what I think people do is they just look for relevant examples by that near peers take. And so I wish there was like greater, you know, it, it'd have to be like, um, you know, it's some kind of scaffolding where it's like people who aren't 10 stages ahead, whether it's like Michael Jordan or Elon Musk. Okay. Those people can inspire, but when you're all the way down here, it's just like, you don't know how to get there. So it's like, we need the people who are two, three, four steps ahead to, to show the way. Cause I think decision-making happens more about like, Hey, yes, there's an imitative quality. It's like, Oh, that's cool. Like I want to become a pro athlete. We see how that's possible. We don't really know how to become a great novelist or a great poet or philosopher. And the only answer we have nowadays is like, Oh yeah, get a PhD and become a professor. But that's like so emaciated. Hmm. And and going to that sort of storytelling angle that maybe we need so going back oh to wait that, wait i remembered sorry. what you asked you asked william blake yes <laughs> yes all right so i became a tech journalist and so twitter was started during that time and i uh i thought it was the silly product that was made for haikus and, and poetry <laughs> so i i snagged the handle william blake because he's a poet i admire um again for uh, these sorts of paradoxes that are like the insider outsider i i highly recommend people take a look at his his little book the marriage of heaven and hell especially the the section called the proverbs of hell and and, and blake was just like this visionary mad at times it's so hard to follow what he's writing about but like here and there there are just there's there's some beautiful poetry mm. Yeah, but it is in that in that sense. I think we're we're talking about the poetry and the, the mm -hmm. storytelling. That it is 
something bigger. And and sometimes I think, yes, we need, as you mentioned, some of those steps for people to know um, how to reach certain, uh, to take certain paths and what to do, mm. the next steps. But I think sort of stepping back to that storytelling um, aspect of, of how we're seeing the world is that there is also a need for a, a more, a, a new narrative in a way that sort of shows that things are possible. And what I'm thinking that what I'm seeing besides just the, besides just maybe what we see in schools and colleges is just overall in our culture, that there's a narrative that's more nihilistic, maybe too alarmist and just yeah. passive, passive about the root causes of, of some of these problems and what could be good solutions. So I know that a lot of the work that the field fellows and others have done sort of tackle that head on. But so I might, I'll follow up with a question on that later, but Yep. Is there, you think that there there is a need for like a big cultural shift to have more support, like a bigger narrative that will invite people to tackle these big challenges? Do you think that's a problem? As that's, well? Yeah, that's something we got to push on. I, I I've noticed I'm in my 40s now, and just my you know peers and friends and acquaintances with with increasing frequency, I've heard people say that they don't want to have kids because they're afraid of of climate change. And, and this sort of a, a opinion is just thrown out there in a hopeless fashion and accepted as as reasonable. <laughs> and yeah. I'm just shocked. Like I I'm, I come from the opposite side where I think I, I, I that's where I'm a romantic at heart in is that I believe in the power of the human imagination. And I think we can solve these problems. So there there is this uh, deterministic, fatalistic mood that has set in with a lot of things where if you are worried about climate change you can just say that now without having any knowledge of what the drivers might be and how we might be able to turn them around that's what's always surprising to me well have you thought about how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere have you thought about how we could remove it no but you're just accepting that it's like doomsday um, so yeah, that, that's, that's, I think a problem. And I think we see it in schools and in, in higher education where, um, it's hard to like, there is, it's not really a problem solving oriented way to learn. Uh, like, you know, you just, instead we have a different kind of scaffolding where it's like, okay, you're going to study the history and development of these ideas. You're going to study Newton. And then that you, once you understand gravity, maybe you learn relativity and then, and, and it gets more and more complex, but you've wasted all this time to, to get up to speed. Um, whereas instead it might be interesting. And I posit this at the end of the book is like, what if education was designed where we just admitted up front how little we know about things and, and there, that there are these great unsolved problems and boy, you'd win a Nobel Prize if you solved one of them. So it's like if you walked into the physics department at Caltech or Harvard, and instead of just seeing the course listings or whatever on the wall, instead there was listed the top 10 problems that even the greatest minds in this building haven't solved yet. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, we've taken a crack at uh, trying to find a unified theory, but uh, we admit we're we're hopeless and, and it's still a mystery. So if you give it a shot, you know, go for it, right? And in that sense, I think if we can reorient ourselves towards, oh, here's how we would make progress. Here's how, you know, if we knock out these ideas and problems and, you know, mysteries, um, I think, you know, we really can make a difference in the world and improve things for for, for all. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you've put your finger on something. It's like I want to move away. I, I'll always, maybe I'm a romantic at heart, but. I, b I believe in the power of human agency and imagination. And so if we can reorient people, I think we'll make progress. Yes. And in that sense, um, I haven't researched everything that is to know about every field fellow or the company that you've supported. But if uh, one of my favorite thing examples or people out there, correct me if I'm wrong, if he's not part of the program, but Boyan Sled uh, of the uh, Ocean Cleanup. Oh yeah, 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 uh, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that I he think came that after I left uh, managing the program. But yeah, great example. Yeah, where... he's a great example of someone who's sort of a young person, also that is sort of instead of seeing his peers, that because some of these bigger narrative mm. generate a lot of I think anxiety or depression in kids, yeah, uh, younger obviously in teens because they see all these problems and a lot of alarmism, but there's no one sort of thinking about solutions. So in that case of him seeing I think a problem and everyone is starting to 
either either become depressed of an issue, worried about the turtles or the banning, yeah. promoting the ban of plastic straws. And then someone like him who creates a company to actually tackle the problem and see, okay, it's a challenge. And I imagine, I don't haven't talked to him, but mm-hmm. and and know exactly everything steps that he took. I imagine it was not an easy path at all. And creating yeah, right. created in some of these huge machines that are cleaning up the oceans. But is that something that that you think that a lot of people that go through your program share sort of sense of like urgency about tackling a problem? I think yeah, I all, think there were a lot. Yeah. yeah, there were a lot who were motivated by this deeper mission. Uh, of trying to solve some kind of problem like that um you know lord deming stands out to me she's a young woman you know we met her when she was 16 but she had been working in labs since she was 12 on uh you know trying to understand how the human body ages what what the the underlying causes of aging are and and to me she's just like a great example of someone who's possessed by a mission um, and, and maybe it's on, you know, all these things are difficult and, and may, but if it's almost like building a cathedral too, for some people where if you, if you add your stones, maybe, you know, posterity will add more and, and eventually will, will solve the problem. But, you know, that said, to be fair, it's like there were Teal fellows who just worked on, you know, enterprise software <laughs> or, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so not everyone, but, but, uh, it is always you know, inspiring, I think, to, to meet people like that. Um, you know, one of the, at the end, to get, like the last third in my book is I, I realized like I did want to advertise or, you know, sort of map out for people this, this boundary, the limits of our knowledge right now, where, where is the frontier? And when I set out to do that, I, I realized just how, how what a blank space there was in our culture because there was no other book that in layman's terms could take you through unsolved problems in energy creation, transportation, healthcare, uh, water, um, you know, all these different topics. There's nothing out there that sort of just in an encyclopedic fashion can take you through some of some of the issues. And that to me was a sign about how little as a society we talk about it. Like when was the last time a president said something inspiring about uh, how to solve these problems? Instead, mm-hmm. it's always about how to contain them or, you know, some policy about, um, you know, deal coping with it or whatever. But God, I'd love to see a president out there like encouraging people to solve specific problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That is in a way the, so the essence of the American dream is to push those frontiers. And at the beginning it was more of the country in a way, it was more of the geographical frontiers. And yeah, as I think a lot of these technological or just challenge frontiers of different issues that that you mentioned in the book or or that we see that we still haven't solved that that could be I think a good motivator in terms of like unifying people around the idea of the American dream is about solving these big challenges. Here's what we haven't done yet. Um, so let's let's. Oh, I I, work. I paused for a second. On the worries, but I was just mentioning that the yeah. the American dream sort of serves as that narrative that could push people to sort of think about these challenges in the past. American dream was about like just pursuing the mission or goals or challenges. Mm-hmm. And in the past is more ge- a geographical frontier of just moving farther West and, and, and selling different places. But now it could be thought of uh, this, uh, or the frontier of all these challenges that you, that you speak about in the book, or that if you want to mention some of yeah. them as well as an example. I think that's right. It's like there, the, in, in the past, it's, it, maybe we're just limited as beings because we think in terms of geography, it's way more exciting and thrilling to actually have a frontier to go explore. But when it becomes this metaphorical frontier that, that is more about the the limits of our current knowledge. Um, I don't know, maybe it just hasn't been able to, to galvanize people to the same degree, but, but I think, you know, the space race was characterized as an extension of the frontier and, uh, Star Trek space was the final frontier. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if there will ever be a final frontier, but I think that this idea that there's some boundary between what's known and unknown and that it, it is a wild place. I think that that's a, a, an accurate model for what the way things are. And, and I, I, you know, there are some people I think who are just born or, you know, maybe they can be developed to try to explore that territory. But, uh, but I think we don't think about it enough now. 
I think a lot of what you're describing is very action oriented. I really like the idea of having, you know, you walk into a place of learning and you've got the problems to solve, right? Like you've got that missional focus, you know, you've got something, it's much more oriented around like, what can I do? How can I improve? How can I, you know, make, um, how can I add? You know, it's uh, funny you say that. Um, and it, and it's true. Um, but it's, so Peter, I, I, I had lunch with Peter Thiel recently and he said, you know, the most important sentence in your book is this quote from Faust that in the beginning was the deed. (laughs) <laughs> not the word but the deed so yeah thematically it's like there is very much this uh may, maybe one of my criticisms of of the ivory tower is that contemplation is important but so is action and and we've just been missing it for so long yeah um, that that when i encountered it in the form of like you know silicon valley and some people working on it it just it, it woke me up yeah yeah, you know, that's a really, I want to kind of stay on that for a second, because that's something that I've uh, been thinking about and sort of wrestling with, you know, we have, we mentioned the problems about alarmism about climate, mm. about people not want to have kids or maybe doomerism, you know, of, right. of any variety or something like that. And I think that there is this sort of creeping nihilism that's out there. And that's sort of, it's almost like a hopelessness that can become paralyzing, or at least, or at least become a convenient excuse not to do certain things, even, right. if, even if it's not exactly uh, the root cause. I mean, I, you can't get inside people's heads, of course. Well, um, yeah, what I can't tell is like taking the example of someone who says they don't want to have kids because of climate change. Is that just a rationalization for a deeper nihilism? Like maybe they just don't believe in like, you know, having a next generation, like life isn't worth it. Right. And so they have this convenient excuse that there's, you know, some doomsday they can use. I don't know. I can't decide. I I don't know. I mean, I yeah. I my guess is there's probably a little column A, a little column B. I mean, there's, there's <laughs> yeah. got I mean, there's got to be it's a lot of people out there. I think um, it's hard to know, but I do think that whatever that is, it, it's certainly mm-hmm. uh, out there and it's growing. And I I'm really really uh, not confident that we'll be able to think our way out of this problem. I I kind of my thinking about this is, you know, we're basically going to have to take a leap of faith approach. Like we're going mm-hmm. to have to just get back into doing these actions. We're going to have to plug, replug back into our communities, replug back into social connections, take plunges into new, new areas mm-hmm. to make progress. Even if we don't fully articulate all of the reasons why you might be able, you might want to do that in like a more propositional way. Yeah. Um, and I think that college and and the university as it is right now is just not geared towards that it's it's much Mm. less geared towards action oriented or getting things started or the deed and it's much more oriented towards propositionalizing abstracting thinking yeah um so i don't know i think think that's right i I, okay this is probably like way too esoteric but (laughs) i got into i picked up i found this old book on it's a history of uh, different types of schools in the Middle Ages, especially in, in uh, especially as related to monasteries versus cathedrals. So there's, I forget the author's name, but it's called the Envy of Angels. And one of the things he points out in the in the Middle Ages was this: there was a split between the intellectual schools, which were about uh, texts and memorization and reciting things. And then another set of schools that was about embodiment and charisma. And those were these uh, cathedral schools. And so it dawned on me that we are just like, uh, we are dominate, we are overwhelmed with intellectual culture, which is like book-based, text-based, you know, speech-based. And we've really missed out on this charismatic culture (laughs) of, uh, you know, just the way philosophy is embodied in someone's life. And in the religious context, it's like you have a touch, someone who has charismatic has a touch of the divine and therefore their embodiment is, is radiates the lesson to the students in a way that, you know, they should imitate. Okay. I see that at play, you know, nowadays where it comes back to those stories and examples where it's like, who are the charismatic people in your life? where, you know, you feel drawn to learn from them and their way of life and being. Um, I, I feel like, you know, our, our higher education system has completely 
is completely blind to this because it is all about like, hey, can you write an essay? Can you take a test? It's not like, hey, can you live life in a certain way? Um, because that that that's just outside the bounds of intellectual culture. Um, so, you know, in a weird sense, it's like, I think we need to find a way to create a charismatic education, like a charismatic pedagogy where, you know, the magnetism of a way of life as embodied in certain individuals pulls people to, to do great things. Um, you know, that's you know, very abstract statement. Um, no, yeah, but, but I, I think, get yeah. I think I think that's the kind of college that I'd want my you know kids to go to something like that. <laughs> that would be uh, something because uh, that's that's sort of I think you know and I think about my own life uh, and certainly it sounds like it's sort of reflected in some of you know uh, what you've done in your life as well. I'm sure Gonzalo would have similar examples. Yeah. You know, that's I think really- we we do see it in the old apprentice to to mastery model mm-hmm. where it's like somehow like you as a novice just being around and working with people who are higher skilled and better than you, you're picking up the skills, but you're also, yeah, it's all that tacit knowledge that you accumulate just being part of a craft. Right. And there's some of that in mentorship now too, I think that Mm -hmm. is is kind of replicated there, but especially mentorship that's sort of maybe uh, goal oriented, um, you know, um, and it's a little less um, formalized in that way. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And in that sense, a question that uh, we were thinking about is, so what would be your advice to a high school senior who's thinking about mm-hmm. what could be his, his or her next step in terms of when he's, they're exploring the different yeah, it depends so, on the person, but like what would be? Right. I mean, what we haven't, yeah, what we haven't talked about is, I mean, I think college still pays for individuals, but the question is why? And, and that's a, a debate where, you know, the, the standard consensus story is that you should, you know, the college wage premium exists, it, you know, pays to get a BA because the college imparts skills to you and those skills are rewarded in the in the labor market. But there's a body of research that, that push, pushes against that quite a bit. Like the biggest thing is this sheepskin effect where if you were gaining skills in college, then every step of the way, you would expect that person to be paid more. So if they had you know, let's say they drop out after one year, two year, three year, or maybe even they're one credit shy. Every step along the way, they should have higher and higher wages uh, because they're accumulating skills. But that's not what we see. Uh, in fact, it's like some, I forget the number, but it's I think it's somewhere like 50, 60% of the wage gains occur only when you get the diploma. So it's like if you got hit by a car on the way to that last exam uh, and you didn't finish your degree, you're not going to make as much because... What the theory is, is that, well, the degree is signaling something about you as a person, not that you have skills, but that you are a certain type of person who can be relied upon to to do some work. Um, So my advice to an 18-year-old with that in mind is saying, okay, I understand if you want the higher wages because you're going to try to distinguish yourself by getting this degree. Um, That makes sense. But the opportunity cost is changing. So, you know, it's very, very expensive. Make sure you study something that at least can be rewarded in the labor market. Um, you know, maybe you need time to explore and, and make friends and so on. I think, you know, there's college can be a good reason to do that so long as, you know, it's balanced by this, this prudence just because the, the, the prices have become so expensive. But on the other hand, if you if you have ideas, you know, some ideas can't wait. And if you're working on something, don't bother to stay. I mean, come come contact us. We'll we'll be happy to help you out uh, and get you started. Um, So, yeah. And then and then more broadly. uh, Yeah, I think. And then there are certain types of people where it's it's we just have this monoculture right now where it's just assumed that this assembly line is the only way to the American dream is the only way to have a successful career. And I think there's also a large number of people who have just a different heart and mind and and maybe are more suited to, let's say the trades, carpentry, contracting, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's like, why are we pushing the people like that into higher education? It's like, maybe, you know, we should do more to help those people build an on-ramp so they can start their career without getting a BA, but maybe something else or apprenticeship or, or whatever. So 
Um, so if you're that type of 18 year old, I'd say, okay, yeah, let don't get the debt. Like, okay, we'll find a way for you to learn this trade or, or something like that. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's a much harder problem than it used to be. I think you could, because the cost of college has gone up so much, uh, don't go in the debt. If you, if you come out of college at 22, not knowing what you want to do and, and, and indebted, uh, then you're going to be in a tough spot because now you're going to have to take a job that doesn't really call, you know, out your, what you're passionate about or draw forth your greatest talents. And you're going to have to do it because you just have to pay the bills. And and that that's quite depressing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are, you know, have fallen into that. Uh, and, you know, on mm-hmm. the one hand, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no fan of student loan bailouts, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I do sympathize when um, the overarching uh, message has been go to college. If you want to succeed, yeah, right. basically, if you want to do anything, go to college, go to college. I know. Yeah. It's and funny you there... mentioned that. I think it's today that the Supreme Court is hearing the case about yeah. the, the Biden administration's debt cancellation plan. And what I find so interesting about the whole debate is that no one is holding the universities accountable. It's like, okay, we'll forgive the debt, but never mind why it was generated. Ask for no reforms. And so in five, 10 years, what, we're just going to do the same thing again? Keep forgiving the debt? It's like, I don't understand. It'll be more if, expensive it, next time. <laughs> yeah. If, if the colleges were fraudulent in one sense and like saying that they would, you know, impart these skills and then people learn nothing and now they're in debt. Well, okay. I feel bad for those people, but we need to hold the schools accountable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that's very strange to me. Right. And of course, and that's, that would be incredibly hard to prove too. Right. I mean, yeah. is it really, did you not get the skills? Were you not oh, a right. student? Yeah. Did you, I mean, you know, um, that's, um, that's different. And then of course, you know, the added layer is you can't discharge these in bankruptcy like you normally would uh, yeah. with other kinds of debts. Um, so I think, you know, starting to unwind this part of, I think the key, uh, piece of this is, you know, employers, employers are still very, very much looking for that credential there. Yeah. Uh, or at least that's my impression. Although that seems to be changing a little bit. Do you think, do you think that we're kind of getting ready for another shift there? How do you, how do you see the employer side of this, um, sort of shaping up? Right. I think it's to come back to that signaling theory of education, the, the, the degree signals, not only that you have the cognitive capability of, you know, intellectual work of some kind, but, but it's also the case that it shows you're willing to undertake a four-year project at great cost, you know, take assignments and orders, fulfill them, hand in the paper, take the test and all of that, irrespective of what you study. Um, and, and that signal is valuable in the labor market. Uh, so we have to find a way for people to send that signal much cheaper um, or or just differently. Where we see it most is in... Uh, actually, the world of computer engineering, uh, where um, because it's a skill that can be pretty directly measured, I mean, either you can build or you can't, uh, we're starting to see more and more people peel off out of college, just not even to do startups, but to work at at companies. So it's not unusual to meet someone who is 18, 19, and actually has like six, seven years coding experience. <laughs> And then they, there's a website called GitHub. It's a repository where people can upload their code. They've worked on open source projects. And now that GitHub account is a greater resume than anything, you know, LinkedIn, because your code is validated by your peers. They're like, yeah, this guy can build. And it may not even be your real name. You could have like Darth Vader as your avatar and some pseudonym, and you can still get hired because you can do the work. Um, so yeah, I think in, in professions where skill can be directly measured, there's, there, there's a way to, to get around the university degree, which is, you know, that degree is meant to signal something about the skills you have. Well, if you can show by this portfolio that you've created and you're so good that people can't ignore you, um, you can, you can certainly start your career, but I think in other areas, it's going to be a little more difficult, but I do see promise in, uh, you know, using that model just in a different ways. We need some kind of network-based apprenticeship system where maybe people can get started, build enough of a reputation so that they get the recommendation to the other employer, the you know, the other program, and then they can go from there. It's just all about like getting your foot in the door and and then working on and and building a, a credible reputation over time. 
So I think if we had, if we were able to build out a network of, of people who, I mean, it doesn't even have to be high tech stuff. It's like, there should be an on-ramp to a career to, let's say you wanted to be like, you know, mid-level manager at a big fortune 500 company. I don't think you need a college degree to do that and be interesting if we could create a network where people could start their careers, get the references and, and then move their way up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one one question be, before uh, before I forget about it that I wanted you to 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 allude to because I, you wrote about it in the book is why did you choose the name fifteen seventeen for the fun and why do you think that's important? No, yeah, um, right. Names are very important to me, including <laughs> my own in the book. Fifteen uh, seventeen um, is we noticed. I, I noticed that people always ask what the number meant if I had it on a t shirt, um, and so I was I, I was looking at numbers and and then in, in yeah back in 2014 15 we started making this analog historical analogy that maybe the university system today is like the corrupt church of the 16th century so when martin luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the church door in 1517 uh what he was protesting against was primarily the sale of a piece of paper called an indulgence the church would, uh, you know, take accept money in return, and they, you know, people would buy this piece of paper because the church said, "Okay, you're absolved of sin. You gave us money. Um, you know, go do it again, and then give us more money or something." Um, so Luther was upset about that in in 1517 on Halloween. Uh, the story goes. Uh, he nailed his thesis to church door. I guess that's not that's up for debate, but we'll take it as true. <laughs> and, um, and and we're not a religious fund either, but the analogy is that we think today the uh, you know secular mania uh, that that feels religious in in its own way is is this idea that everyone needs this piece of paper, otherwise they're going to hell. Except it's not an indulgence; it's called the diploma, and these universities are selling it at great cost. And so, as a fund, we say we don't believe in indulgences. So we named ourselves fifteen seventeen. And, uh, and yeah, it's been, it's served us well. Cause yeah, it's funny. It's like, we'll be on the street or at an event and, and people will ask us what the number is. And it's only rarely, but it does happen from time to time where someone knows the, the year and they'll ask, are you some kind of seminary or. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. All right. Well, I want to make sure that we, uh, we get you out of here relatively. On okay. Time. Well, thanks so, for having me on. Great yeah. discussion. Great questions. It's been, it's been really good talking to you and, yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm curious to keep following you and, and kind of see what you're, see what you're going to be coming up with at the fund. And, and just again, I want to remind everyone that that book is paper belt on fire, how renegade investors sparked a revolt against the university uh, sounds like it's a much needed one. So thanks a lot. Yeah. Michael. Thanks for having me on. Anyone can reach out at 1517fund.com or as mentioned, my Twitter handle, William underscore Blake on Twitter. Happy to say hi there too. Awesome. Thank you. Okay.